some banks like have failed banks cause a lot of problems if you go into that mindset i think it changes a little bit on the other side you think it's a bunch of nonsense i'm spewing this is a really elaborate like story you've concocted to be able to humble brag about your bank diversification <laughs> <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I got a question for you. Yeah. I'm skipping all pleasantries. All pleasantries. Because I got a question. My for kind you. of podcast. This is 2023, the 2-0 deuce trace. If I say AI, what do you think about? Artificial intelligence, dude. Exactly. If this is the year 1999 and I say Ooh. AI, what do you think about? Killer crossover. Is he in the finals at that point? I can't remember when he when he like put a whole team on his shoulders. Do you remember trip down memory lane? Do you remember uh back in the George Shen days, sophomore year? They'd tell the rest of his teammates to go stand in the corner like literally they'd have no, two people in one this. corner two people in this corner and they'd this. have he'd stand at the very top just at basically the other side of the half court line and just they just encourage people to try and guard him and then he'd obviously break that guy's ankles he'd drive if the people that were supposed to guard the folks standing in the corner would help he'd just pass over they'd get a wide open shot if they'd stay home then he'd go for a layup. Like that was the whole there it offense. Is. There it, it was is. amazing. All right, let me let me bring y'all along in case you weren't following there. Because sorry, we always get on our esoteric ish. So artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence right now, Chat GPT and all the whatnot is the rage. AI is what's talked about right now. But if you go back twenty years, AI was Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson's that individual with the killer crossover teammates sitting in the corner doing whatever they wanted to do. I bring this up because. This just made me chuckle. This made me chuckle this week. Someone tweeted out, why is he doing this? To a picture of Allen Iverson and above it says AI could replace equivalent of 300 million jobs. <laughs> and then Barstool Sports uh, commented on that too. It, this I don't know why. I mean, it's so simple, but <laughs> it, just, it, it, it gave me all the chuckles. It's so funny because uh, I have a hard time thinking of another example of where like two letters became so synonymous with an individual. And yeah. then to your point, 24, 24 years later, those exact same letters mean something entirely different, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's still, still Just, AI. Why is he doing this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. he's going to work all the jobs in the U.S. at once, man. And yeah, like exactly. Exactly. not many of those jobs are in basketball either. I, I don't know oh, how he's going to do oh. this. Oh, they are not. They are not. Uh, welcome to another episode, everybody. Listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com. We do ask that you go rate and review the podcast. Helps people to find us. Share the podcast. That also directly helps people to find us because you done sent it to them. So appreciate that. You want to start? Or should I start? Well, I I want to see if I can throw a curveball your way. So we it. are recording this on the morning of the Berkshire event. I know. Not from Omaha. Not from Omaha. Maybe next year. And but actually, this might answer those questions as to where we record this next year. Dougals, I think we should play a little game where you ask me questions and I pretend that I'm Buffett because I think I can nail all of his answers. What are you eating right now? Oh, some peanut brittle and I got a little Coke over here. Ding, ding, ding. No, I said, what are you eating? So he wouldn't he would just specify <laughs> what he's eating. You went into drinking, so you actually kind of failed. Peanut brittle. See, okay. Yeah. What are you drinking? I got this is my third Coke, and it's seven thirty in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> How gingerly did you walk up those stairs? Oh, I sprinted. This is my favorite day of the year. <laughs> I got one for you. Um, yep. Well, I could buy all those oil stocks after you got crushed buying oil stocks a decade back. I like money. <laughs> The Wall Street Journal has been writing articles about the questions yes. that he might get asked. I think that's the most fascinating one. And I think it's because he's still in a little bit of a defensive position. Uh, thinks that 
the war between Ukraine and Russia could turn into a larger event. Ooh, that doesn't sound yeah. very buffet at all. No, I really do. Why do but, you think he's buying the, uh, oil prices are crashing? Like that stuff. If you, for for folks listening to the pod, if you've never held like a individual name in oil, um, and I, I mean whether I mean refinery or someone like Exxon, Chevron, Oxy, which he owns, you quickly learn how dependent you are on commodity prices with the holding of, yeah, of business like yeah. that. Yeah, my my point. I'm not. I can't say fully that you're wrong, but my point is that historically, Buffett hasn't used. I'll call that like macro information to determine what he's going to buy. It's the the value of the organization and the belief in what it's going to be, you know, ten years from now, whatever it might be, which is different than like the Ukraine war. That that's what that was what I was reacting to. Okay, you're completely right, and I poorly articulated it by by grasping straws as an example that is probably not even in his thinking. But what I would say has to be in his thinking is that he thinks um, commodity prices, specifically oil will remain average to above average levels yeah, that's true. for the foreseeable future. And I, I shouldn't have speculated as to why he might yep. hold that hypothesis, but that's one answer where I think I might actually learn something new. Everything else is going to be like index funds. America is great. Charlie's here to rip you to shreds in three words. And, you know, I, yeah. I do this to give uh, the economic community of Omaha a boon. But that's and and because I like it. Charlie reminds me of you if you slept on the wrong side of the bed every day for 76 years. Because so many of Charlie's responses are always like, who cares? That doesn't matter. It's because they're stupid. Right. It's like the things that you don't necessarily say exactly, but that you but think, think about a lot. <laughs> yeah, You think about a lot of the nonsense that exists out there. It'd be a lot of waking up on the wrong side of the bed, but yet and still. We, we should hop into it then and see if I can bring out my inner monger. Is there anything else you're excited to learn from this weekend in Omaha? Uh, what, what I'm most excited to learn, I don't think I'm going to learn because it's like not the style that they, they play to, but I'll be curious. And it's mostly the situation that we exist in right now in the market of like, is there value? Is there not value? We've talked about how they, you talked about defensive position right now. And we discussed how Berkshire Hathaway has mostly been sitting on just like piles of and piles and piles of cash right now. They've been doing that for the last few years here. And uh, there's some that's been deployed over the last 12 months. We discussed the the Japanese trading houses uh, from last year. You just talked about oil. But I'm just curious as to what the is this a time for capital deployment? Or are they still going to just sit in cash for a long time? And how do they perceive the current environment? That's like mostly, but I don't think I'm going to get a lot of like directness there. They'll talk about what they did or what they didn't do, but mostly it's probably going to pull out some black and white printed out PowerPoint slides talking about how America's great. Most likely. Yeah. <laughs> most likely. Those are good we'll slides see. though. Those are some good <laughs> slides. Uh, Buffett, I know a guy does uh, a whole company actually does incredible slides. <laughs> Needs some help. Yeah. Just, yeah, right. just great, great in slides. color. That like in color, they're amazing. Dougal, okay, I'm, reach your fish bowl. I'm reaching the fishbowl, and I'll use a little transition. Buffett bought into Japan. Buffett for a while was saying like, you know, America, America, America doesn't really touch international very much. Went decent sized into Japan. Why is that? What's going on? Not sure about Buffett specifically. I mean, we discussed that, but this isn't about Buffett specifically. But there was a report this week, not the first of its kind by any means. I know you're about to jibber jabber about that, but I enjoyed reading this. It's called International Diversification. Still not crazy after all these years. The folks from AQR put this together. I'd like to give a little highlights from it, if if I may. Go if ahead. I may. How do you ask? What's the actual question? They say, if I may, but do you, may I? Oh, yeah, that's probably may it. I. May I? Yeah. <laughs> may I if? All right. So there were five theories, let's call it, uh, postulates maybe, arguments that were put forth in this, four that were for international diversification, and one that it says was against international diversification, but it kind of was for international diversification too. 
the, I'll, I'll read through the five quickly and then we can go back and talk about them. The first is it's just common sense that you should diversify. <laughs> okay, that's the first one that's four. The second argument that was against says everything crashes at the same time. So what the heck is the point of diversifying internationally if all the countries go down at the same time? Like it doesn't really matter when it matters. The third, that changes in valuations can lead people to make the wrong conclusions about the past. So that's like, how do you extrapolate what happened in the past to the future? That's an argument for because extrapolation like that you shouldn't do. The fourth is looking at today's valuations. What the U.S. has been doing is unlikely to persist. U.S. has been outperforming. You've been jibber-jabbering about that for 75 years now. The fifth mm -hmm. is international diversification is especially useful for active investors. So those are the five points that were brought up here. I'm going to give a couple bullets on each of them, if that's cool, and I'm going to get your reaction. Good with that? Yeah. Let's roll with it. Okay. The first, not going to spend a lot of time on this one. It's common sense that you should diversify. So this is saying that if you look at any home market, by home market, I mean your country. Look, Just look at the country that you live in. It makes sense generally to diversify within that country. And so if you extrapolate out, you'd say, therefore, diversifying across the world also makes sense because it's it's good to balance between different economic conditions, different technological revolutions, whatever. So that's the basic theory. You got any anything to say for or against that? One's, that one's kind of basic. Yeah, I'd call it obvious. Basic, common sense, and obvious. There we go. So we'll skip past that first one. The second one, everything crashes at the same time. So why bother? This is what was stated as the potential argument against what I found. It's, oh, it's garbage. Like it's garbage. Go ahead, <laughs> Charlie. Okay. So if everything crashes at the same time and I have three different candy bars as assets. No, if I if I only like Milky Ways, everything crashes at the same time. We're saying Milky Ways crash in value at that time. So I'm out. Like, obviously, it makes sense. Sorry, <laughs> Wait, I don't know why I'm talking about candy bars. Candy bars? <laughs> if you're saying, if, if that's really about to everything to crashes at the same time, then the singular asset you would buy would crash. It, like, that's, yeah. uh, it's too yeah, the, simplified. The, and yeah. obviously, it makes sense that at that time when everything else crashes, like what happened last week, and people could say all regional banks crashed, but First Republic, PacWest, crashed to different levels than other regional banks obviously holding a basket of banks make you better off in that case and holding a basket of things that weren't just banks make you even better off diversification is pretty simple here let's stick on this for a little bit because that point is very important and i can see i think you probably can too i can see where people would make this argument that if you go back and look at let's look at 2007 2009 time period Right. And you look at the stock markets around the world, they all came down. And so if you think about it from the high level perspective and you just go, the purpose for me to diversify is such that when one thing comes down, another thing comes up, goes up. Right. That, that's that's like a hedging diversification argument. But I'm looking here at the do zero zero Ocho and. It seems like U.S. came down and everything else came down. So diversification across geographies is a bunch of garbage. Like I can see people making that argument. So the point that you raised is a really important one. So I just want to stick on it for a moment. Even, even if it's directionally the same, different portfolios of assets, and in this case, different countries, can go down at different rates. There's a chart that I enjoyed that's in this report in this section. It looks at January 1950. To December 2022, the titles the the chart is titled "Average Worst Returns Over Various Horizons for Local and Global Portfolios." What that means is it looks at the average worst return for a country, and it has a line for that. Then it looks at the average worst global return. It has a line for that, and then the third line, which I'm going to repeat a couple times because I think it's a little it can be a little difficult to understand is the average global return during the worst local return events. I'm going to put this into to more layperson terms here. So one line is, if you look at the worst returns for any given country, here's that trend. One is if you look at the worst returns for overall globe, you get that. But the beauty of diversification comes in this third line, where it says, during the worst times for any country, what did 
the global return due. And that line is well above the other two lines. And it gets directly to your point. If you hold the whole bucket of assets during the worst time that any given country might have, the whole bucket of assets diversification does pretty pretty freaking well, is what this is saying. Did I say that all right? Yeah, but I'm going to repeat it. It's so hard to do charts on the podcast, and this yep. is a really powerful one. So basically, if you hold one country and it happens to be the worst country, um, everything heads down for, say, 18 to 24 months. And then 10 years later, you've still lost like 60% of your value because you said, I wasn't going to diversify and you just happened to hold the worst country. The flip side is if you had the average global portfolio and you lived through those worst events, yeah, you start 20% down, you trend all the way to maybe 45% down, but 10 years later, you've made money. You've made like yeah, 15%, right. right? So in one case, you said, I just want one egg and you happen to be unlucky with the egg you picked, you lose 60% of your money after 10 years. In the other case, you said, I'm just going to grab all the eggs, right? And I know that when we go through tough times, that's going to trend down with everything else. But the rebound here is what's drastically different. You hungry? Yeah. Because you're talking about candy bars and eggs <laughs> this morning. No, I think that was really, that was very well said. Very well said. So hopefully between those two explanations, this makes sense. We're also going to put, you'll see this uh, out on the Substack on Monday, so you'll be able to take a look. But really, really well done. Okay, the third one. Changes in valuations can lead people to make the wrong conclusions about the past. Okay, here's something. I'm going to read out a, a little paragraph, basically, from this section. And want to get your reaction. Since 1990... The vast majority of the U.S.'s outperformance versus the MSCI EAFE index, just imagine that as like a global non-U.S. index, of a whopping 4.6% per year. So that means that the U.S. outperformed non-U.S., according to this one, uh, one index, by 4.6% per year, which is a lot. This was due to changes in valuations. The culprit. In 1990, U.S. equity valuations using Schiller Cape were about half that of the EAFE. At the end of 2022, they were 1.5 times the EAFE. So what this is saying is that if you look at, if you go back to 1990, so about 30 years ago, and 1990 to 2022, the United States index outperformed by 4.6%. And so people look at that and they like, boom, boom, chickalaka. U.S. is doing their thing. U.S. is great. But most of that outperformance came because stuff just got more expensive. Like you had expanding, this is looking at Cape, but you can say like price to equity ratio, market to book. There are probably a variety of evaluation indices. If you take out that multiple expansion, we'll call that, the difference in performance was 1.2%. So much, much smaller. And so it's not as if, according to this, it's not as if the fundamentals, the earnings, right, the value of assets, all of that increased by an average of 4.6% outperformance every year. It's that people favored the country. They just bought more into the U.S. So prices were raised. I'll pause. Yeah, it's obvious. This whole, I mean. <laughs> yes, there you go. So what this is saying is that when it, the the point of change in valuation will lead people to make the wrong conclusions, it's that the wrong conclusion that they're putting out here is saying, you could say the U.S. outperformed by 4.6%. That shows that U.S. better. But it's saying it showed U.S. more favorable for the most part. A little bit better, mostly more favorable. Okay, you just said, I agree. That's cool. Number four, based on today's valuations, we should infer that the U.S. outperformance is unlikely to persist. Given number three, Given that a lot of this outperformance came from multiple expansion, as you stated before, if you extrapolate that out, it's unsustainable. Like the U.S. would be too big a part of the, the global stock market, like too concentrated within the U.S. And something I'm going to just talk about momentum a little bit in here. I'll read this part. If investors only recall U.S. outperformance in recent decades and do not know it is mainly due to relative richening, that's what we just talked about, relative richening. They may take the past as prologue and extrapolate it indefinitely. 
effectively acting as momentum investors at horizons where reversals are more common. I'm going to translate this right quick. If you look at U.S. outperformance and ignore the fact that it's just because U.S. is more favorable and not more better, then you're going to act like someone buying into a trend at the high point. Now, this isn't saying at the high point. It's saying where the high point is most more probable. But Yeah, I mean, I kind of figured out why I was so bored over here because this is just obvious. <laughs> but then I think I figured it out. So It's important. This it, stuff's important. Well, it's important if you want to make a decent return because just holding generic U.S. stocks is... But the, who cares about that? Most people most people are trying to underperform the market, Douglas. Uh, I can't story. find exactly when this book came out i think it's eight years ago there's a book called global value by meb faber i'm actually i actually did research in this book my name is on page 23 i've been familiar with this for a long time and so it's like uh what you said off the pod is entirely true so skippy it's obvious that you should own international stocks and maybe the majority of your holdings should be international stocks. Yes. And you've known that for a decade. Yes. Well, why haven't international stocks outperformed yet? Well, that's the egg on my face, right? Yeah. Like, more, but it will come. Food. It will come. I, I've held a significant amount of international stocks for at least eight years because the multiple expansion that you talked about is not due to fundamentals in the US. So it's been a great time to hold US stocks because you've been able to ride that momentum of basically people thinking that US stocks were better, even though the fundamentals didn't show that. Like the US stocks weren't making, they were making 1.2% more money than their European and worldwide counterparts, right? So I don't know. To me, this is like, it's it's a munger. It's just like, yeah, of course. Humbug. Yeah. It can happen. Yeah, it's it's important to keep in mind. And when we have our premium episode sometime in the next like four to six weeks, I think we're gonna do do a little premium drop. We'll talk a little more international. I'm looking at some international stuff right now. I like how it ends with this as part of the conclusion in this report. It's kind of saying it's this is the egg on face potential point, not exactly over the last decade, but it's an important point generally, not just about international to keep in mind. A diversified portfolio that you hold today might look completely sensible. Tomorrow, it will look full of mistakes. After the fact, that portfolio will almost always have lots of positions that have underperformed. Even if you have more winners, you're still going to have a lot of losers. I think this is a broad, important point in investing overall, having nothing necessarily to do, or I should say independent of, international, is that any portfolio that you end up investing in you got your, let's say you have all your justifications and your rationales and everything. Today, you're going to be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was talking to you the other day when I was like, I'm looking at a portfolio I created. I was like, oh, who put this together? You know what I'm saying? Like, it looks so good. And then fast forward five years and will it outperform the market? Who knows? But I'll say probably just because that's the only reason I'm putting it together. But yeah. that outperformance is likely to come from most of them being losers <laughs> and a couple of them, hopefully you know, becoming winners, right? You And if you overreact, which people can do, if you overreact in the circumstance of seeing a bunch of your portfolio being winners, because if you, sorry, losers, because if you assume that they all should be winners, it's not going to work over the long term. You missed the best quote in the conclusion of this. It's okay, no pain, sorry. no premium. Oh. And that's, I've been dealing with the international pain for a while, but I still know what the data says. I still know what the valuation says. Like you do. That's how it says you're missing be. out on some U.S. returns, is what it says. Here's the thing that you're just going to skip past listener... that. <laughs> no, if our <laughs> listeners decide to invest internationally, here's the thing you need to know. Like I held a bunch of Greek stock at one point, right after when, like 2013, when that country fell apart, right? And you'd follow what was happening over there, and you'd be like, "Oh my goodness, it's ripping! It's up forty percent." And you'd look at your brokerage account and it'd be up 15%. And that'd because of, be because of currency fluctuations or other, like there's so many more dynamics yeah. that are involved. Yeah. So um, that's why no pain, no premium sticks out to me. Is like, this isn't an easy road. You're going to think that you have everything figured out and it's not going to, 
hit for you in a month or in a quarter it would be it's like a decade-long play effectively you want the multiple expansion to reverse or uh revise in the opposite direction it's a really good point oftentimes when you're looking at uh, the returns of, inter of international stocks or international countries i should say you'll see a couple columns one that says the return in us dollars and one that says the return in local currency because of those currency fluctuations that can yeah. be different so real talk fishbowl all I care about these days, unfortunately, I don't even know this, is uh, California real estate. It, it's true. So you, I know you used to live in Cali. Yeah, yeah, you used to live in Cali, right? Um, true story. Okay, what is the one thing Californians as a whole are most proud of about their state? Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Let's keep schools. going. We got a list of schools. We got a list schools. of you. Top end schools is out there. I think. Yep. Um, I think the gdp of the state being like bigger than all these okay, massive yeah. countries like france yep. um, it, that's from memory what else uh, they love that you have mountains and ocean and like there's a lot of things that california's really yeah, good like for, napa right? napa valley napa good mm -hmm. schools is on that list right diggles yep. schools yep. like freaking ucla Ooh, um cal berkeley baby. Ooh, say uh, another one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm concerned over there you're getting really excited <laughs> santa barbara's a favorite oh Ooh. yeah you been to that campus man gosh mm. i jack johnson wrote songs about their cafeteria that's how good the campus is i mean come on it's isaac impressive. hayes wrote songs about a cafeteria too but anyway continue <laughs> right, this particular article is about uc santa cruz okay are those and the banana slugs? I always get confused as to who the banana those slugs are. Those are the banana slugs. Okay, yeah, great that. name. So clearly, I think the University of California at Santa Cruz is a exceptional school. And the community has great pride in that. The state has great pride in that. Excellent. People that attend or people that study at Santa Cruz are now making decisions about what they study and how long based on if they can afford housing in the community the most sought after on campus place Dougal's, is a what it's a campsite oh one of the best places to live in santa cruz for a student attending the university of california santa cruz is a campsite do you know why is it on a beach no it's because no. it's somewhat affordable this is how oh out of control. Goodness. So it's always been an expensive place. It got more expensive when people left San Francisco, the one of the, the most expensive mm -hmm. community in America, to relocate to Santa Cruz during the COVID nonsense. But here's a quote from the article, and then I want to get some thoughts from you. So this reference is Mr. McKay, who's a professor at UCSC. Um, he led a study in 2021 that found Many of the UC state, I'm just going to call them Santa Cruz students, were forced to take out loans to pay rent and living in makeshift illegal units and garages, living rooms, and pool sheds. Nearly four in five, go say that again, four in five, 80% of undergraduates surveyed were rent burdened, spending at least 30% of their income on rent. Mr. McCann researchers also created a new category, obscene rent burden for those who are spending 70% of their monthly wages on rent. Some 44% of undergraduate students fell into that category. 40% you said? 44%, 44%. of undergraduate students in this community are spending more than 70% of their uh, like monthly income on rent. These that are the people, wild. There's, there's so many examples here where people feel like they hit the jackpot because they can camp in a trailer <laughs> and eat ramen like that's the whole yeah. life and it's just this existence of i'm at a great school i'm theoretically yeah. in a great community that i can't enjoy because i don't have any money for it so those are kind of the facts what what really struck a chord with me about this article is if your state's pride is based around these great schools and then your state takes external factors create a place where for people to attend these schools 
it's almost like they're in prison. I mean, there's an example of here of a, someone studying their doctorate that could do two more years of postdoc, and she's like, I'm out. Like, I, I just, I don't want to live like this anymore, even if I'm engaged in the material and would like to be part of this university. So first of all, yes, stop being in school and go get it, like, go use your education. But sure. anyway, postdoc too much. Personal opinion. That has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Postdoc too much. <laughs> I think the general rule of thumb, and I looked this up right quick because I, I was thinking, was around here is about 30% of your income for rent. And, and the more a, conservative guidelines, Google. like something I would advise or try and live by myself is 25% yeah. of income. So. Yeah. 70%. Wow. Wow. There's a, there's a part of me, most of me. So my instant reaction, I'll give you that most of me. And my instant reaction was this is messed up. Housing is, as we've been discussing way too unaffordable. We got to figure this out. I then had like a little semicolon and came back and said, as a college student, the struggle's real. And hasn't that kind of always been the case now campsite situation i don't know ramen yes <laughs> like that, that mm -hmm. part makes a lot of sense campsite doesn't make a lot of sense and the the biggest thing that stands out it's a little separate from the article but i want to get your reaction here the biggest thing that stands out is that in the world where there's the struggle for people in college to like find housing all that stuff like that sounds like the college lifestyle but also the conversations that we're having around once you get out of college, that's still the struggle and it will be the struggle for a while. That that's where it starts to feel kind of messed up to me. If you know the campsite piece, cause that is also, you need to have a foundation on which you can focus on your studies. Right. And if you're too concerned about like survival because a bear is about to eat you, which is the only thing I think about a cocaine <laughs> bear is about to eat you. It's the only thing I think about then like, it's hard to focus on, on your studies. But th those are kind of the two camps that I, no, no pun intended. The two camps <laughs> I was just thinking about there. I'm not saying I expect undergraduates attending college to be rich, wealthy, anything of the sort. But at the same point, I think you should be able to be in, in a range of fair, say roughly 30% of your income is being spent on housing. So you have income for other basic necessities. And so... This is a community where NIMBY happens just like every other community. Yeah. But California, uh, wealthy California communities seem to be the best at taking NIMBY to an extreme level. I mean, build a high rise for all I care. I'm sure it's going to destroy some people's views and that sucks. But like these students, if you want your university to be elite, you have to allow people to actually be able to live there. So I, again... My views on issues like this evolve all the time. This is definitely different than I thought about it a decade ago. But yeah. like, I just don't see how anyone wins here. And what this article does an amazing job articulating is how ultimately that's going to hurt the community. The sense of pride for this community is this great institution. Well, the great institution becomes less and less valuable because of the dynamics that are happening outside that institution. It's a problem. It's true. That is true. And it's also likely a sign of where the state is going because these are state funded institutions. And so I'm sure the state doesn't like this. Mm -hmm. Strip everything else out of it, strip all the politics out of it. If this is your state and you are, to your point, proud of your schools, you just don't like this fact. And so they just don't have the money to support it. Well, and I'll mention it. We won't talk about it in detail, but this is something similar has been happening at Cal Berkeley where they planned to build a bunch of student housing and eventually got, they lost the court battle basically. And because yep. of that, they've decided to cut enrollment. Well, like this is the university of California system, which has a clear mandate to, to educate students in the university of California. I don't think the desire when that was created, when that was drafted hundred plus years ago was to, be unwillingly cutting enrollment because you can't find housing yes. for the pe yes. people that you're trying to educate. That's, that's very a little true. backwards. Very true. Very true. This article is by uh, Christine Maduke. Uh, really good one. We'll put it on the subside. Thank you. So uh, pour one out, play some boys to men. 
whatever you need to do. I'm reaching the fishbowl to close out a little chapter on some, a very small chapter that we've been discussing. That's around First Republic. This week, JP Morgan purchased First Republic out of the ashes. So First Republic, no more for all intents and purposes, now owned by JP Morgan. Uh, good for the fact that First Republic didn't have to go to the same place as Silicon Valley Bank went, where the government had stepped in and guaranteed a bunch of stuff. So that's great. I think JP Morgan's assuming the, I think it was like $92 billion, something like that of uh, deposits. So fantastic. I'm glad your money's safe. Good. Jamie Dimon gets wealthier. We were all hoping that was going to happen. So fantastic. I want to extend that a little bit into this Gallup poll report that I saw around banking in general and how people are feeling about banking. We talked about how confidence is the name of the gang. Trust is the name of the gang when it comes to banking. And people are not feeling very trustworthy right now, I think generally understandably, but it's not trustworthy to the same extent as they did about 15 years ago during the great financial crisis. So there was this Gallup poll. Uh, it was conducted from April 3rd to April 25th of 2023. So this was a month after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapsed, but before this week. So it was before First Republic I don't know, I'll call it collapsed. And Americans worry about safety of money in banks is the first headline. The question was, how worried are you about the safety of the money you have deposited in banks and other financial institutions? What percent of people said that they were either moderately worried or very worried about their money in banks? I haven't, I haven't seen this. I'm going to say 50%. Just about. 48%. So 48% of respondents said that they were moderately worried or very worried about the safety of their money that they have deposited in banks and other financial institutions. That is just about the same. It's a little bit higher, but just about the same as when this poll was conducted right after the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008. So that's the feeling. Wow. That's the feeling that people have. They then broke this down out into a number of sub, uh, subgroups. So they segmented into party, so political party, identification, education level, and annual household income. Hold up. Yeah. I'm going to munger on that. Why do we have to do this? Why do we always have to be like, and you know what? You are different from your fellow Americans. We're going to tell you how the diff the other political party feels. Sometimes can't we just be like 50% of Americans are, are stressed right now instead of like dividing us? No. I so, hate it. Sorry. <laughs> I hate it. We can't. No. So in short, uh, Republicans and independents are more worried than Democrats to the extent of so Republicans and independents were both about 55 percent, 51 to 55 percent of folks who either moderately or very worried. Democrats, about 36 percent were and, moderately worried or very worried. And those numbers would flip if the different party was in the White House. Uh, I don't think they have any meaning. I mean, you put you munga, munga, munga. <laughs> You're probably right there because you could one could say like without the political view, right, that you just took, one could say Democrats have less money. <laughs> so, yes, all your deposits are probably protected because you don't have enough money to be worried about. You could say that. But if you go down uh, and look at the annual household income numbers, so they separated this into less than 40,000, 40,000 to 99,999 and $100,000 or more in annual household income. And yeah. the people with $100,000 or more are less worried than others. So the point, the, the point I just brought up around, it might be because Democrats have less money. That's not it. If you have, according to this, $100,000 or more in annual household income, 40% of people were moderately worried or very worried. And only 10% were in the very worried camp. Whereas if you have less than $100,000, both the 40, less than 40 and the 40 to 99999 were basically the same. In sitting at about 50-ish percent uh, in the worry camp. And so that's interesting. Um, also, if you have no college degree, much more worried about the safety of your money than college degree. So college degree folks, 36% were moderately worried or very worried. No college degree was 54%. So it is interesting to break it down. I know you're talking about why you got to divide us, but it's interesting to take a look, take a gander at, at the breakdowns and then pontificate as to why and no action from us, but generally, I think it's interesting.
I'm glad you think it's interesting. I'm glad you're glad. (laughs) I don't. uh, You said you said there's no action here. There's definitely no action. If you try and break down why why those differences between political party or income exists, I think you have to make broad conclusions that are just speculations. And so I'm tempted to go down that rabbit hole, but I'm not sure that it adds any value. Yeah, it probably probably doesn't add any value. I would fall into the probably the not worried at all camp. So the buckets were very worried, moderately worried, not too worried and not worried at all. I'm not, not, maybe not worried at all is too aggressive, but I probably fall into that camp. And the, the reason, I'll tell you the reason why for me, and I'd be curious as to where you fall. The reason why for me is because when I chose my financial institutions and banks, I was in the very worried camp before any of this stuff <laughs> was happening. And so the way that I thought about opening bank accounts, financial institutions, and allocating money across them, of which I have six different banks and financial institutions right, that I have money across, was because I started at the very worried. Because of the allocation, now I'm not worried at all. Wait, you're uh, Anto Tacupo? You know about Giannis? Oh, (laughs) yeah. We we talked about Giannis a few months ago. No, Giannis opened like 250 bank accounts. (laughs) Yeah, but you you have six different bank accounts for bank diversification. Is that what you're talking about? And financial institutions. So this includes brokerages and like anywhere that my money could be. Yeah. Interesting. Different checking accounts, savings accounts, and and financial institutions. My my point is that it's kind of like when we we discuss uh, investing in stocks, going into it, with the risk mindset of understanding buy sell criteria, why you're holding all that stuff can take away from some of the things on the other side. So like if you, if you open up your bank account with no thought that your money could ever be at risk, I could see where, when there's runs on the bank where you might be like, well, I, like this is the first time I'm thinking about this and I could see panic. But if you go into it saying that if you look across history Remember, we had that episode that why can't banks just be normal? Like, if you look across history, banks have historically failed. Not all. I'm just saying, like, some banks, like, have failed. Banks cause a lot of problems. If you go into that mindset, I think it changes a little bit on the other side. You think this is a bunch of nonsense I'm spewing? This is a really elaborate, like, story you've concocted to be able to humble brag about your bank diversification. <laughs> <laughs> My Man, I wish I was like Dougals and would have thought about this in 2016. Oh, okay. all right. Okay. I wish okay. I could live in fear of the U.S. banking system my entire life. So I can't open a bank account without checking their financials. <laughs> Don't tell me you're not even close to the same. Fair point, though. I uh, have always thought bank diversification is important. I don't keep gobs of money in any one institution. I have a Chase account, which is one one of my accounts is a Chase account, which is the simplest way to get rid of this hogwash. Like Chase Bank of America, like they're by definition too big to fail. Like too big to fail gets yeah. thrown And out it's why around. they will pay you no interest. Exactly. And then there's really cool institutions and I'm super fired up because I, I just signed an agreement to be an ambassador with one that helped diversify bank risk for businesses and for individuals which means spread your deposits across multiple like regional or smaller banks, which gets you FDIC insurance of 250K. Like there's super cool uh, solutions to this problem. I do think if the regional banking turmoil continues into the next week, I would expect someone in the government, Palantim, to take FDIC insurance up to 500k or maybe even a million bucks because this is that concern that you mentioned yep the start of the segment it's not good for anybody it's certainly not good for the economy fear fear is not good fear at this level for extended periods of time to your point not good and it's it's a different type of fear right like fear of um my local grocery going out of business or this stock holding I had that was a, a bet on a startup, you know, losing 90% of my money is one thing. There's like, there's things yeah. that are more of a gambler's mentality. This is just, I just want my money to be safe, right? Yeah. And Fundamental. So, yeah. Fundamental. You reach it in? I'm reaching in for one last thing. Remember uh, Veblen good? <laughs> what? <laughs> was it, did you say gremlins? No, Veblen. Veblen. I don't think so. 
So this uh, goes back to one of the books I really enjoy, uh, W. David Mark's Status and Culture. And he yeah. talked about Veblen Good and Conspicuous Consumption. Okay. There was a picture going around Twitter this week of a some fancy Porsche. I'm not a car guy. It was like a $150,000 car. Sounds and, like a uh, 911 Turbo GPT. Or just like that's a GT4. exactly what it was. Yeah. 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 Um, the license plate said Veblen which is named after Professor Veblen, who coined the theory that there is goods where when price increases, demand also increases. It's simply like these status and culture goods. So how hilarious is it that the guy that spent a ridiculous, way too much money on his car knows that he's only spending way too much money on his car for the status of saying he can drive that car and put Veblen on his license plate. It made me that chuckle, is. and I still that chuckle is. about it about every day. And to this broader point, who is the wealthiest person in the world right now? It's uh, the LVMH guy. There you go. Arnott. Bernard there you Arnott. Go. There you okay. go. I'm glad you brought this up, Douglas. There is a fabulous podcast on LVMH. Let me find it for you. Okay. There's a fabulous podcast on Mr. Arnott, how he built his fortune and his company, LVMH, acquired. It's three hours long. That's how deep of a dive it is. I love it. Uh, Absolutely fascinating. And it it was so good at articulating the way he thinks about the world and the value of luxury goods in the right frame of mind that I almost bought a luxury good as a value investor. I mean, (laughs) amazing. What what did did you almost buy? Well, I just happened to be in one of the world's richest, richest shopping districts uh, down in Honolulu. And Ooh. so there, there's plenty of opportunities. Waikiki? There. Waikiki. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Okay. Check it out. Love it. All right. I got one last thing, too. Uh, so what I want to hit on is this. And this is not about the organization, the company that I'm about to talk about here necessarily. But it's more of the, this is the time that we're in, the chat GPT time. We started with AI. Let's end with AI. So. Chegg. Chegg is a company that was founded about 20 years ago in 2005. And when it was founded, it was known for textbook, like revolution in the, tech, the textbook market. And textbooks, real expensive. You go to college, you pay whatever for tuition, you pay like twice as much for your textbooks. That's not quite accurate, but that's what it feels. It feels quite ridiculous. And so Chegg said, well, what if we can rent textbooks? Let's do that. Let's revolutionize that. Let's re- revolutionize digital textbooks, right? make textbooks a lot cheaper. Awesome. Love it. Since then, their business has expanded. Now it's more of what I'd call like an academic services for students type of company. So they've got uh, they've got subscription services, which is the bulk of their revenue. They had almost $800 million in revenue uh, last year and something like 85% of that or something like that is was subscriptions. And so for subscription price, you get your textbook rentals, you get homework help and the like. Okay, so that, that's Chegg. The reason I'm bringing this up around AI is that this week, Chegg had earnings. And during their earnings call, Chegg said that their subscription business in the month of March, one month in the month of March, has been impacted by ChatGPT. Of people saying, oh, sorry, of, yeah, of, of students coming to them, or well, not coming to them, sorry, and instead saying, instead of paying for your subscription service for homework help, I'm just going to go to ChatGPT. Again, this has less to do with Chegg in particular, but has to do with like how quickly potentially some of these things can turn. After this earnings call, Chegg stock dropped almost 50% in the middle of this week. Half of its value went away the next day because of this statement. Some of it came back after that. But again, not necessarily about Chegg, but it's like really fascinating. And Chegg has been working with OpenAI to build out something called Chegmate, which is like an AI-supported homework help service. They've been building this out. It's slated to start like testing, you know, out in the market pretty soon. But what the analysts are saying, and analysts are always right, so take this at face value. What the analysts are saying is that by the time that Chegg delivers its product, they're concerned that the mind share would have already shifted. Again, this is not even necessarily about Chegg. I just think it's like really interesting to see an example like this 
of something being disrupted in a short period of time and then the the way that the market reacted. Munger, what do you think? Yeah. So that's right, that's, our, that's our show. That's right. our... <laughs> so competition arrives and businesses die. Yay. Yeah, it's it's the speed. To me, like it's the speed of this. So in if you go to the first first couple months of the year, no impact on business. And then they're saying in the month of March, <laughs> there was the impact on our business here. And then the next day, 50%. I know you still don't care. I know you still don't care. But I, th- I think that this is interesting to see what was theoretical months ago of talking about there's this chat GPT thing. Let's see when it comes out on beta. Oh, it's looking really interesting, right? And then within months, seeing what it, it potentially impacting like a real world example of one business. The most amazing thing is like the search volume that chat GPT gets and the mm. it's becoming, I don't know if it has, but like, remember when Google became a verb? Yeah. It, like it's becoming part of the lexicon. It, it's becoming part of what people talk about in their day-to-day lives. And there's this incredible marketed machine that's actually organic around it. Like it's, it's people on podcasts talking yep. about it. It's talking about it to your friends. It's using it in bizarre use cases. Like I saw someone say it can replace your travel agent. And so when we're traveling, I'll go in and be like, plan a five-day trip here. And I don't really like it. Like it doesn't end up being my routine itinerary, but it's fascinating. I think that's the the story. And so with Chegg specifically, I think the market is overreacting, but of course it is because the yeah. marketing machine around chat GPT is so that's right. Incredible right yeah, now. It's a, uh, the market's sensitive to it. It's like yeah. the, the belief is this is going to revolutionize. So then, or transform whatever it is. So then any example of it doing that, it, it assumes the worst or assumes the best. It goes, it goes in, in both directions. Yeah. Now this is not what Chegg should have done. Cause it would have been a disingenuous, but if they would have, presented their same results and somehow managed not to mention that they think they were losing market share to open AI. I don't yeah. think the market would have reacted yeah. as strongly. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. That's a wrap for me. All right. Thanks guys. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Skippy Dougals. Premium subscriptions. Dougals is right. We're going to wrap, put out some mid-year content here in the new f- future. That's uh, skippydougals.supercast.com. If you're a premium subscriber, you get other benefits like you get the show early. All other things Skippy Doogles is skippydoogles.com. That's right. See you next week. Love it.